Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message. stand to your feet as we get ready to dive in God's Word. We've started a sermon series two weeks ago called Possible, and it is uh, located in 1 Corinthians. We'll be studying through the book of 1 Corinthians for several weeks, and I'm really excited about this because I believe that God is going to grow us through this sermon series. And and so I I put the title of it as Possible because there are some heavy-hitting topics in the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians talks about Unity in the church, how we have fractured relationships, but how God has called us to be unified together um, under the banner of Jesus. Uh, Secondly, it talks about relationships, specifically uh, sexual relationships. It talks about singleness. It talks about marriage. It talks about gifts of the spirit. It talks about how we should operate in the spirits in the church. Should Should I speak in tongues or should I prophesy or should I speak in tongues at all? It talks about that. It also talks about women in ministry, head covering. Should a woman be silent or should a woman speak in church? Should a woman preach in church or can a woman not preach in church? It also then at the, at the very end, it deals with the, the resurrection of Jesus because if Jesus didn't get out of that grave, none of the other stuff that we talk about will ever matter. If Jesus didn't get out of the grave, we might as well pack it up and go home and live our best life. Amen. And so we want to journey through this book because oftentimes it's called possible because oftentimes when we look at God's commands, the first thing we think when we look at ourselves is we think it's impossible. But 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 there's some uh, very important things that Paul says, even in the first chapter of this book early on, he lets us know that that God will sustain us. He literally says that God will strengthen you, that God will sustain you, meaning that if God called you to it, God will provide the resources to do exactly what he called you to do and be exactly who he called you to be. And then he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. He says, God is faithful. God is faithful, meaning this, that your ability to do what God called you to do is not based on you, it's based on God. That that's good news for you because God is not calling us to live a life in our own power, but it's by his power, by his strength, by his grace, and by his might. So whatever God calls you to do, guess what? It is possible. It's possible. So whenever you see God's commands, I don't want you to any longer see them as demands, but I want you to see them as delight. Because if God calls you to it, God can help you do exactly what he calls you to do and be exactly who he called you to be. Amen? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to start at verse 18, and we're going to read all the way through chapter 2, ending at verse 5. So I'll say that again. We're starting at 1 Corinthians chapter, verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 2, ending at verse 5. And it says this. This is Apostle Paul speaking. He says, for the word of the cross is foolish to those who are perishing. But it is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where, Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ 
crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, because God can save anybody, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, in your own salvation, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing to bring to nothing, what is viewed as something so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption, in, in order that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Here's what Paul says about himself. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I, I didn't come with brilliance of wisdom or speech. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with pers persuasive words of wisdom, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today that we get to study together. Lord, I, I just pray that you would do amazing things through our time together today. I pray, God, that this is not not a monologue that I'm doing alone, God, but I pray along with the saints, God, that you would join in with us, that we would all participate in this moment of preaching and proclaiming the good news about Jesus. And so, Father, we thank you today for this wonderful, gracious opportunity. I pray your spirit would work in our hearts today, that it, that it would transform us, that it would renew our minds, God, that it would heal our brokenness, Father, that at the end of the day, we would keep our eyes focused on Jesus. And so, Father, be glorified today. Jesus, be glorified, be lifted up. God, we, we just pray that you would, by your grace, just do something special for us today. And we thank you, we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And the people of God said, amen. You may be seated. From the sermon series, Possible, my sermon title today is Why We Need the Cross. Why We Need the Cross just, just to give you a little background on Corinth, where Paul writes this letter and, and this church is, is located, I, I did a, a, a longer dissertation on the origins of Corinth and the background of this actual book two weeks ago, if you want to go back and watch the message. But if you were not here, you're not familiar, I'll just give you a brief synopsis of what Corinth was like. Corinth was this metropolitan city where people came from all over the Roman Empire to make it in life. They, they came to Corinth to, to be somebody. It was a place that was known for business, for entertainment, and, and for leisure. A couple weeks ago, I mentioned that if you were to think about Corinth, when you think of Corinth, I want you to think about New York meets Los Angeles meets Las Vegas. Whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, and whatever happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. This is a bustling, crazy, chaotic 
city where people have come from all over to be whatever they imagined they could be in life. And, and whoever you wanted to become, you could become that in Corinth. If you wanted to be somebody, you could make it happen in Corinth. There I say, if you were ambitious and you came to Corinth, it was possible. Whatever you dreamed of was possible in Corinth. If you wanted to make it, you, you wanted to go to Corinth to be somebody. And in the midst of this bustling, chaotic, and immoral city, the Apostle Paul plants a church. He planted a gospel outpost, a church in one of the most immoral cities in the world. And, and in that, many people responded to the message that Paul was preaching. Many people responded to the good news about what God had done to save sinful humanity and forgive sinners through the work of his son Jesus. Many people responded to the message of the good news about Jesus. But here's what you need to understand. Paul was not the only person in Corinth with a message. Just the same way as, as I'm not the only speaker in the culture today with a message. There are many messages out there today. And so just like it is now, when Paul preached, Paul wasn't the only person preaching. Paul was not the only message messenger. There were other competing messages outside of the church. This was Greek culture where speech, philosophy, and rhetoric was the order of the day. People love speech. People love philosophy. People love rhetoric in Corinth. The, the cultural currency of that day was intellect. Everybody wanted to sound smart. Everybody wanted to sound wise. Everybody wanted to be seen as a source to go through for ver to go through for various things. The better the speaker you were, the more influence and prestige you had. If you sounded smart and enlightened, you were considered wise in their culture. Wisdom was what everyone in Corinth wanted to have. Think about this. This is in antiquity. Think about Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, that this is who they would have looked to. These are the sources that they wanted to find out what they were saying. And so today, the way they look for Aristotle, Plato, and Socrates in books or to go maybe see them speak somewhere, today we find most of the world's greatest philosophers online. The wisest person today is determined by how many followers we have or how many likes, retweets, or reposts a person can garner. Everyone in that day would, would have had a social media presence. Everyone in that day would have tried to figure out the flyest thing to say in 280 characters or less. Everybody in that day would have had a YouTube channel pontificating about their expertise and whatever you can think of. There would have been financial experts. There would have been medical experts. There would have been sports experts. There would have been experts in everything. And it didn't matter if you had any expertise or degree in some sort of academics in that area. If you got online and you had a social media account, you can pretend you're an expert. You can be a financial expert and be broke. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? But, but even the people in the church, everybody would have had an online ministry. Everybody would have been posting on their social media accounts about Jesus. Everybody would have been posting on their social media accounts uh, uh, pontificating their newest spiritual revelation. Even if they didn't know the Ten Commandments, they would have put themselves out as a Christian expert. 
Everybody would have been, been an expert. Everybody would have been online. Everybody would have been preaching. Everybody would have been an expert in something. Remember, at the outset of this letter, if you heard the sermon a couple weeks ago, Paul tells them at the outset of the letter, he says, God has enriched you in every way. He's enriched you specifically in speech and in knowledge. These people were good at public speaking in Corinth. They were good at talking. They were good at pontificating. They, they understood knowledge. They understood the deep things of God and the deep things of culture. The speech and knowledge was the, was the course of the day. God had gifted them in speech. They excelled in the gift of gab. Everybody has something to say in Corinth. And God gifted them to do that. The problem was they were using the good gift for the wrong purpose. And whenever you use God's good gift for the wrong purpose, there's a problem. So that being said, they were using their gift to win and influence, to compete, so that they could promote themselves, which is another version of serving the idol of self. And I told you they had many idols in Corinth, but the primary idol was the idol of success, the idol of, se- of self. And, and, and if this is the case, this drive to individualism in Corinth was fracturing the corporate witness they were called to have. It was undermining the actual message that they were preaching. If we, if we were to go back in that time, some of their social media messages would, would have sounded just like the culture around them. They, they would have been being more influenced by the people in the culture that the message that saved them, if it was back in those days, not now, but back in those days, it would have been hashtag influencer, hashtag influencer marketing, hashtag competition, hashtag fitness. Now, I looked up all of these hashtags, the most famous hashtags, and when I saw fitness, I kind of side-eyed and rolled my eyes just because you now got you some workout tights and you go to the gym and you say you're a fitness expert and we looking at you and you didn't look like that six months ago. I don't know if that's fitness. That might have been financed. Hashtag fitness. That it don't really count if 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 it was financed. It don't really count. At least say hashtag fitness financed. But but just because you went and bought some stuff and it looks different than it used to look, don't try to fool us, making us think we can go in the gym and look like that when we ain't got the resources that you have to make your thing look like it's looking. Hashtag fitness. It did not look like that six months ago. You're going to try to fool us. Hashtag fitness. Hashtag Monday motivation. Hashtag travel Tuesdays. And all of these things is what they would have been putting out there. But all of these things sound like work, not like grace. And this is what they were out there putting out there because the end goal of their wisdom. So when you hear wisdom, I want you to think Worldview. I want you to think worldview. In their wisdom, the goal of their wisdom was to have man at the center and God at the margins. Their wisdom says man is at the center of all things and God is out there somewhere if he exists. And so they were taking on the wisdom of the culture, which may have brought them success, but it didn't bring them salvation. 
brought him success, but it didn't bring him salvation. Paul uses the language of wisdom as a touching point to connect them, connect with them, to drive home the point of the gospel message. So I want to give you a definition of biblical wisdom. Here's what biblical wisdom is. Biblical wisdom is skillful living that is aligned with the purposes and priorities of God. Biblical wisdom is skillful living that is aligned with the purposes and priorities of God. This is what biblical wisdom is, skillful living that is aligned with the purposes and priorities of God. The flip side of that is worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom is foolish living that is aligned with the purposes and priorities of man. One is God-centered, one is man-centered. And here's the thing, what saved you was not the wisdom of the age, but what saved you was the word of the cross. Let me make this plain to you. I want to give you an illustration that some of you may be familiar with. I want to give you a pyramid. and This is the food pyramid. You, you may have seen this before. You, you may have seen this thing before. Um, and I think this is good. This is actually one for the for, for Mediterranean diet. You may have seen this in school. My school didn't have one because we didn't have none of those nutrients. All right. Your school may have had that. We had the little pizza and the little square thing with a little wrapper, and you had two choices of a drink, white milk, chocolate milk. All right? And so we see the, at the bottom, it's important. You get some whole grains in your diet. You get some beans. You get some nuts, some seeds, and you see bread there at the bottom. And so it works its way up, right? You start from the bottom. Those are the most important things that you need to have a daily serving of, and it works its way up. The fruits and vegetables, you need to have that daily. Then it's olive oil. You need to have that daily. And then fish and seafood, you need to have that a couple times a week. And then you got your dairy and your eggs and your poultry and your yogurt. You can, you can have that in moderate portions throughout the week. But, but then at the very top, at the very top, top is meats and sweets specifically I want to point out the sweets and here's what it says you should eat this on special occasion or in small amounts now if you were to eat the top thing the sweets every day you would probably have some really 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 bad health if you ate that all day every day you would not be in a good condition you would always be at the doctor your stomach will always be hurting you will always have a headache something would always be wrong with you so the idea is to only have that every now and again. Can you imagine if you woke up every morning and had an ice cream cone? And every lunchtime you had an ice cream. And before you went to bed, you had ice cream. And instead of eating lunch, you had ice cream. And at dinner, you had ice cream. And you rarely ate any of those things at the bottom. You rarely had some whole grain or some bread or some beans. You, you rarely had anything. You, you would always be sick. You wouldn't feel well at all. You, you'd be sick. You wouldn't look good. Your skin would look crazy. You'd feel crazy. You'd be always tired. You'd be lethargic. You wouldn't want to do anything. You wouldn't want to get out of the bed. You wouldn't want to go anywhere. Something would always be wrong with you. And that's true. And so it gives us advice and wisdom on how to follow a diet that would be good and healthy for us. But just like there's a food pyramid, thanks to Brett McCracken author, there's also a wisdom pyramid that is different. This is the wisdom pyramid. And I want you to notice something. What's at the bottom is always the most important. At the bottom, you will see the word of God, the Bible. And then secondly, the church. This is a good source of wisdom, a good spiritual diet. And then nature outside God's creation, the sun. Somebody should go out in the sun today. It's going to be sunny all day long. Somebody should go and walk and do something today, right? Because that's good for us. And then you see books. You should read books. You should read wide. You should read an array of books. And then there's beauty, the arts, music, entertainment. And then at the very top, is the internet and social media. 
And so if I were to compare the two, the thing that you need a daily serving of that's most important for your diet is the thing at the bottom. It's amazing how in the, in the, in the food chart, the bottom is the bread. And, and then at the same time, at the bottom of the wisdom one is, is the word of God. What, what is it referred to as, as the bread of life? Right? Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the what? The mouth of, of God. Right? And, and, and so we see that. But what you shouldn't eat every day and what you shouldn't have first thing in the morning is the thing at the top. The thing that you shouldn't have at lunch every time is the thing at the top. What you shouldn't have for dinner and before you go to bed as a midnight snack is the thing at the top. But I believe, I'm just sensing this, I don't know, I could be wrong, y'all tell me if I'm wrong. I think some of us, the first thing that we do when we wake up in the morning is not have the thing at the bottom, we have the thing at the top. And we eat this all day long when we're only supposed to have it on special occasions. But, but if we give ourselves a steady diet of the thing at the top, it is no wonder why we're spiritually sick. It is no wonder why we're always tired. It's no wonder we don't have an attention span. It's no wonder we don't remember anything. It's no wonder we're always lethargic because we've been feeding ourselves a heavy dose and diet of that which is not really good for us. And guess what? It's not that you shouldn't use it at all. It's that it shouldn't be primary in your life. And the reason why the Bible is at the bottom, because it is what points us to the word of the cross and what it's really giving us is spiritual wisdom. It is making things make sense to us. It is putting the world in its proper place and proper perspective. Life is not found at the top. Life is found at what is the bottom. And here's what Paul says in verses 18 through 25. Paul says, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I'll set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom. God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. So we read this about the word of cross being foolishness. It really just means absurd. It's ridiculous. It's utter nonsense. But it is to those who are perishing. God's wisdom is only foolish to the extent that God does not fit in or coincide with the way that the world perceives God to be. It's only foolish because he does not fit into the world's box of what God should be. The world says this, in my wisdom, God will be more like me. He would judge me based on all the good that I can muster up on my own. He would judge me based on this great job that I have, this degree that I earn, this neighborhood I live in. He would judge me based on all the things that make me feel good about myself. He would judge me based on all the influence and achievements that I've earned. As long as I do more of the good stuff than the bad stuff, then in my own spiritual estimation, that should be enough because that is how I like to imagine God to be. He is just like me, so therefore I can save myself. Therefore, I can boast even in my own salvation, the way I boast about everything else. But this message of this Savior 
this crucified Savior, I, I can't get with that. I, I can't get with the reality that, that I don't just make mistakes, but every day I sin against a, a holy God, and there's no amount of good deeds that I can do to compensate or make up for it. You want me to believe that some guy from a small place called Nazareth was a Messiah, and he walked on water and healed blind eyes and made the lame walk and raised the dead and turned water to wine? I believe that part, but not the rest. And hung on a cross, was killed, and then this same guy was resurrected from the dead, and is now still alive, ruling and reigning right now, and that dude is coming back, and I have the answer to him, and the only way for me to be saved and have a relationship with God is through him? Yeah, okay, that sounds like utter foolishness to me, but Paul says to those of us who are being saved, it is the wisdom and the power of God. It's the wisdom and the power of God. And here's what, 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 what Paul references. He references the scripture in Isaiah. And early on, God said, for it is written, verse 19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And I will set aside the intelligence of the intel, the intelligence of the intelligent. And here's what you need to know. God will be God and God is not tied down to human status quo. God is not obligated to think as we think. We cannot reduce God down to our own terms and our way of doing things. You don't get to determine how God saves. He does. God is not subject to us. We are subject to him. Paul asked these rhetorical questions in verse 20 and 20, verse 20 and 21. Where's the one who is wise? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom. God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. When Paul says, well, your scholars, your philosophers, your intellectuals, he's saying, what other message can save you? Yes, the philosophers of our day can bring about exceptional advice, but the advice that they bring can help us live. It can't bring salvation, though. The world's wisdom never has had a clue when it came to God. But God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached now it would sound to some on the surface that Paul is against wisdom that Paul is against intellect that Paul is against those ask the ask questions Th that's not the case here's what you need to know Christianity is not against intellect Christianity is not anti-intellect it's not anti-philosophy it's not anti-wisdom how many times in scriptures where, where the scripture says ponder these things think on these things things. Renew your mind. How many times have you read that? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. God is not anti-thinking. To have a brilliant philosophical mind is actually a gift from God. There are people who are wise in so many areas from academics to education to finance to business to the arts. God is not against wisdom. God actually created wisdom. God is the, cre the creator of wisdom. There's a, a Proverbs, Proverbs 8, 27 says, I was there when he established the heavens. This is wisdom talking, that wisdom has always been around. When you look at the Old Testament, Job's, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, you know what those books are called? Wisdom literature. God is not anti-wisdom. God is not anti Intellect, what Paul is opposed to is the wisdom of the world that leads to man attempting to live and have life apart from God, which in the end results in man's destruction. This is why you can have the most intellectual people in the world that can present the world's greatest scientific theory and solve the longest mathematical equation, but can't compute how the world came into something from nothing. And the best they can come up with is a bang. Well, what created the thing that made the bang? They look at God's vast creation 
and they deny his existence. How do you go to the beach and see the ocean do what it do and say there is no God? How do you go to Colorado and see all that snow, all those mountains? If I was God, I wouldn't have created that because it's cold. Every, everywhere would look like South Beach. How do you see God's vast creation, childbirth, and say there's no God? Have you lost your mind? Just because you have intellect, does you mean you have true wisdom. And this is what Paul is getting at. The advice and the philosophy of the day can solve many things, but it cannot solve the one problem of sin. Only the message of Christ and Christ crucified can do that. Philosophers have never been able, able to come up with a, with a thought process or philosophy wide enough to handle what do we do about sin and suffering in the world, but God does. And here's the thing. We have this message, but we can't always expect that people will respond to the gospel. Humans cannot grasp God's wisdom through their own wisdom. God actually has to reveal it. In his book, The Wisdom Pyramid, author Brett McCracken quotes J.I. Packer, and here's what he says. I have this quote for you. It says this, it is not for us to stop believing because we lack understanding, but to believe in order that we may understand. This is important. As Augustine said, unless you believe, you will not understand. Faith first. Hear this. Faith first, sight afterwards. Don't we like to do that in reverse? But God says faith first, sight afterwards is God's order, not vice versa. And the proof of the sincerity of our faith is our willingness to have it so. You need all the answers before you can believe in God. But why would, why would God give you all the answers? Your mind doesn't even have a capacity for that. But when we believe, we believe by faith. But God has given us more than enough proof. And here's what it says in verses 22, 22 through 23. For the Jews ask for signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Here's the thing. So we talked about Jews and Greeks, right? Jews, they wanted these dramatic, miraculous occurrences like the Red Sea parting again, already, although God already parted the Red Sea. Greeks, they wanted something that was eloquent, something that their mind could conceive. If there's a God, he has to fit into these parameters that we can conceive and, and pontificate about. But, 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 but Paul says we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and, 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 and foolishness to Gentiles. And so when it says a stumbling block to Jews, really Jews had this thought process, in which was, which was to trip, the scriptures do say this in Deuteronomy 21, 23, anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. And so they believe that that applied, not knowing that the Messiah hung on the tree to be a curse for us, right? They could not bring themselves to believe that God's Messiah would die under a curse on a tree. It, it, was, it, was, it was ridiculous, a stumbling block to Jews that the Messiah would hang on a cross. For Jews, their Messiah was to be powerful, a powerful king with the blood of his enemies splattered on him from killing them, not from his own blood being shed. This was a, this was a stumbling block to them. They, they couldn't believe them. A power 
powerless, humiliated Messiah made no sense for them. It was utterly, utterly unthinkable for them to imagine a Messiah who wasn't all powerful that didn't come back and kill all the Romans who had them oppressed. They, they wanted a Messiah who came in in majesty and splendor, not one who was humiliated, humiliated on a cross. And so for them, it was a stumbling block. The word stumbling block there literally comes from the Greek word scandalon, where we get our English word scandal from. It was a scandal to Jews that the Messiah would actually die in the manner that he died. So they couldn't understand it. It was a barrier to their belief in God. For the Greeks, it just didn't make sense for them in their worldview. A suffering God who dies as a criminal makes no sense. If God is going to be God, he can't be a criminal. He has to be this, this deity that doesn't get dirty. He can't be bothered with human pain and human suffering. We can't, we can't imagine a, a God like that. To the Greeks, it was all about external strength and power, so it left no room for a cross. It left no room for a cross, and you're wondering why he says we preach Christ crucified. Here's the problem. It is normal for people in our culture to be friendly towards the cross. Even unbelievers wear necklaces with, cross, with crosses on them. People, people that, 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 that never have their shadow darken the door of a church have tattoos of the cross on them. Some of you are wearing crosses right now. You know people who wear a cross that have no relationship with God whatsoever. So for us, it's friendly. It's not offensive. You can wear a cross to work. Nobody will say anything to you. But in that culture, the cross was not perceived as that. The cross was offensive to, pe to people. So we think about a crucifixion, it was probably the cruelest and most horrific method of execution ever practiced. And here's why. It deliberately delayed death until maximum torture was inflicted on the victim. The victim could literally suffer for days if they were crucified. It was worse than just shooting somebody and they bleed out and die. It was worse than just stabbing somebody and they bleed out and die. No, if you hung someone on a cross via crucifixion, they just hung there for days while the blood came out. It was a torturous, humiliating death. So much so in this culture, it was unspeakable to talk about the cross. It was only reserved for the worst of humanity, those who committed treason, those who murdered people. But no regular Roman citizen, no other person would ever go to a cross. So they didn't even have discussions about the cross at the dinner table you don't talk about it it is forbidden and so the Greeks who are called and the Jews who are called they understood that the cross was actually the wisdom and the power of God and here's why the cross is the greatest manifestation of God's power and God's wisdom here's why because on the cross God levels with sinful humanity he levels with the worst of the worst you can't get any worse than somebody who hangs on the cross what does our sin do it makes us the worst of the worst but on the cross Jesus hangs in there on the cross with the worst takes on the penalty that they deserve it was your sin my sin that put him on the cross and Jesus hangs there so the crucifixion is actually the power of God because it lets criminals like you and I go free and so the crucifixion of Christ is at the heart and the humility of God is that he identifies with sinners and sufferers by reaching down and revealing himself in the crucified son. The creator of the universe is no stranger to suffering, no stranger to weakness, no stranger to humiliation. Through the crucifixion, God leveled with humanity. He humbled himself and associated with the lowly. So if you feel low and if you feel left out, if you feel unworthy, God is right there with you. It's an amazing message to have a God who's not allergic to suffering.
Jesus relates to your greatest pain. He relates to your greatest issue. He relates to your greatest struggle. If you've been heartbroken, if you've been heavy burdened, if you've been weighed down, if you couldn't sleep at night, if something has broken your heart into pieces where you thought you would never recover, Jesus suffers with you. It's an amazing message to have a God that can relate. We serve not a high priest that wasn't touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but in all points, tempted as we are yet without sin. That's an amazing message. See, the world has good advice for you, but the world can't suffer with you and for you. The most they can do is put in a post and say, R.I.P. Thoughts and prayers. But no, the Savior of the world gets in it with us. He gets right next to us. Matter of fact, he says, move out of the way. I'm going to stand in your place. We have a safe. This is why we need the cross and need the crucifixion. You're never too far away from the scope of God. You're never too far away from his touch. He can always relate to you and feel you. Even when you can't feel him, he's feeling you. That this is the good news for us. This is why we need the cross. It is the wisdom and the power of God. And Paul uses two illustrations. I'm going to look at these two and we're going to be out of here. The number one reason why the cross is the wisdom and the power of God You only have to look no further than the Corinthians' own call and conversion. They responded to the message of the cross just like we have. Your own call and conversion is proof that the cross is the wisdom of God and the power of God. And secondly, Paul says his own preaching the gospel is evidence of the wisdom and the power of God. Let's read verses 26 to 31. He says this. Paul says, look, look at your own situation. If you don't believe the cross is powerful, look at your own situation. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective. Not many powerful. Not many CEOs and executives are sitting in here. Not not many of noble birth. Not many of you were born rich and from a wealthy family. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing to bring to nothing nothing what is viewed as something so that nobody can boast in his presence it is from him that you are in Christ who became wisdom from God for us our righteousness our sanctification and our redemption in order that as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the Lord and here's what he's saying to the church although there may be some wealthy among you in Corinth not many of you in the church came from wealthy families you are the least likely of people who have had a relationship with God in the wisdom of the world, if God were saving some people, he would only save those who had resources and means and came from well-to-do families. If God was picking a, a, a heavenly all-star team, you wouldn't get picked. Just think about you sitting right here. Just think about if you had to pick who was being saved. There are a lot of Christians that you know that wouldn't be on your list. You wouldn't pick them. You wouldn't pick them. You got some family members you're thinking of right now as I'm talking about this. Like, yep, mm-hmm, yep. You wouldn't pick them. But it's not up to you. Everybody in heaven would be, be people that agree with you. Some of you would pick no Republicans. Some of you would pick no Democrats. Some of you would pick no poor people. Some of you would pick no rich people. Some of y'all would leave certain people. Y'all would leave Kim and Kanye out of heaven, wouldn't you? I'm tired of them. I can't take this no more. They can't take this to heaven with us. We're not dealing with this no more. All this tweeting and posting back and forth. The kids, we don't care about Pete. I'm tired of Pete. I don't even know Pete. I'm not taking this with me to go see Jesus. You know I'm telling the truth. Enough already, eh? 
God chose what is foolish. He chose what is weak. He chose what is low. And this is a direct gut punch to those who believe that my ambition and my achievements can somehow save me. This is a gut punch to believe that those who by their own works and righteousness can save themselves. And this message turns works-based righteousness upside down on its head. The wisdom of God that says, no, you cannot make salvation what you want it to be based on merit, based on influence, based on climbing the ladder, based on knowing the right people, based on being accepted in the world. No, this wisdom of God says your education, your career, your professional associations, your frat, your sorority can't save you. Those things can help your career, but they can't save your soul can't save your soul those things can be good if they're leveraged for the glory of God but they can't save you you cannot put your hope and trust in that which you can beat your chest about to say that you achieved and here's why because God doesn't want anybody taking credit for his work salvation is by grace alone and God removes any grounds of boasting in one's own self-sufficiency but in him, he gives us free gifts of grace. And I'm almost done. Verse 30 says, it is from him that you are in Christ. Who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, our sanctification and our redemption. Meaning this, if you feel low, if you feel unseen. Hear me, if you feel ashamed. If you are insecure in your life. If you feel insignificant, like nobody sees you. God has exchanged all of your reproach and he's giving you something that money can't buy. He's giving you righteousness, sanctification, and he's giving you redemption. He's giving you his righteousness. So when God sees you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. He set you apart for his use and he has redeemed you, brought you back from the bondage of sin and freed you to serve God. Paul's own example is in his preaching. Part number two, the wisdom and the power of God is revealed in Paul's preaching the gospel. Paul says in verses one through five, chapter two, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God, I didn't come with brilliance of speech. I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in in, in much trembling. Talk about a fear of public speaking. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with the demonstration of the spirit's power. So that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. Paul is saying, I'm not the most eloquent speaker. I actually came to you in fear when I came to speak to you. I wanted to present the message in its most compelling form as possible. Hear this for all you podcast listeners and all you YouTube sermon listeners. He says, I came to you in in, in no sort of form that you would be compelled. And I wanted to make the message compelling, but not so compelling that I watered down the contents of the message so that it could become palpable and popular for the culture. He says, I wanted to leave Christianity as it is. I wanted to give you the real nut and bolts of Christianity. I wanted to give you meat and potatoes. I didn't want to give you a message, water down the gospel and the cross just so that it's palpable and that it's popular in the culture. I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus Christ and him crucified is the only thing in a sermon that can actually save you. And we listen to all kinds of sermons with all kinds of preachers. But just because somebody opens a Bible or references Jesus in a message, we think it's all good. But let me rock your brain today. Just because someone mentions Jesus in a sermon doesn't mean it's the Christ in a sermon. Muslims mention Jesus. Mormons mention Jesus. 
Jehovah's Witnesses mention Jesus, but they don't mention the crucifixion. They don't mention him on a cross. They don't mention him getting raised from a grave. That is the gospel message. A crucified and resurrected Messiah is what saves. Without the cross, there is no salvation. So how come is so many preachers preaching messages without Jesus and without him crucified? If a preacher waxes poetic and stimulates your mind and emotions and offers you the best advice with the best sermon illustration, but if they take Jesus off the cross and leave him in the grave, that's not a sermon. It's just a good talk. That message was so good. Oh, my God, girl, I got to share this with you. Oh, my God, I got to share this with you. It was so good. He was talking about these relationships and how if you do this and they do that, and so you what you want to do. He was just talking about how I can level up, right? How I can, how I can manifest some stuff and I can level up. Oh, my God, this sermon is the best sermon I ever had. Girl, he bought, he bought a Maserati on the stage and was driving it. And I was like, oh, my God, God wants me to have a Maserati. Oh, my God, I, I can have a Maserati, too. Oh, my God, he told me that if I just get my act together, that, that God is going to bring me a man in my season. But what if he doesn't? I'm going to say this. Please, please come back next week. Oh. Oh, no, I ain't going to say Yeah, I'm going to say it. No, don't say, yeah, I'm saying. You might be single until you're 45 years old. You may never get married. But when these sermons tell you that that's what you're going to have and you don't have it, you know who you blame? Not the podcast. You blame God. See, when you don't preach Christ and him crucified, you think everything is about you and fulfilling your desires. The best thing that God could ever do for you was get up out of that grave because you can have the man you can have the Maserati that he brought on the stage. You can have whatever. But if Jesus doesn't get out of that grave, none of that means anything. You're still dead in your sins. That's why we preach Christ in him crucified. Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. To it is a salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is what saves, not good advice. Shout out to all the preachers who wax poetic and give good advice. Shout out to all of them. I love it. It's awesome. But stop calling it a sermon if it don't have Christ on the cross and him out of the grave. If you tweeting, if you posting, if you podcast, if you do whatever you do, and if you call yourself a Christian, why is it that none of your stuff talks about the cross? Could it be because it's not popular and it's not palpable? 
Paul says, I ain't come with eloquent stuff. I wasn't trying to impress you. Although I can put some stuff together. This is, this is the greatest literature ever. This is the greatest literature that's ever been written. Don't, don't think you got to have a sloppy bad sermon to be effective. But what it is saying is, it's nothing if it's empty of the cross and the resurrection. I'll say this and I'm done. We are not saved by the speaker. We are saved by the Savior. We are not saved by the speaker. We are saved by the Savior. And if all you can think about after the message is the speaker and not the Savior, it's a problem. Every sermon should point you to Jesus. Paul says, so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. Jesus is the only one that has the power to save. The cross was for us. Because on the cross, where we should have been, Jesus hung in there with us. He took on our punishment stood in our place, died the death we should have died, was buried, put in a grave. Three days later, when they rolled the stone away, the tomb was empty because Jesus had risen from the grave. And because he has risen and risen from the grave, I've been raised, we can have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. In Christ Jesus. It's possible. The life God calls you to is possible. Not because of good advice. But because of the cross and the resurrection. You can do it because Jesus got out of that grave. If he got out of that grave that changes everything. It is possible. And that's why we need the cross. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website outpouringorlando.com to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship with you. Have a wonderful week.